With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. We're at the point in the season where every week we hear people, analysts, experts say that this is the week the Jets can get a win. Or I could see the Jets surprising some people here this week. And I think we hear that because we understand how rare an 0-16 season is. So you're almost, in saying that you think the Jets can get a win this week, you're almost just going with the averages. Because odds are, as bad as the Jets are, you would expect that they're going to fall into a win at some point because 0-16 is almost hard to do when you have professional football players out on the field. This is an NFL that is loaded with parity. There's not that much difference between 6-10 and 10 and 10-6. Ten and six. A 4-12 and 12 team can pick off a 12-4 and 4 team in a given week. It's not unheard of. You could fix a team in an offseason. You can similarly ruin a team in an offseason. You could go to the Super Bowl and then you enter a playoff drought for a decade. But for the most part, most games are close. Most teams are competitive. Most pro players are professionals for a reason. So once you get to that 0-8, 0-9, 0-10, 0-11 point in the season, predicting a competitive game coming up soon, predicting a win, or even just claiming that a win is possible, it's, it's, it's not like you're really going out on a limb. Saying, oh, oh the, the Jets have a chance to beat the Patriots, or the Jets might beat the Chargers, or they could win this game against the Dolphins. It's just, it's assuming that at some point a win is going to come because 0 16 is hard to do. But the bottom line is the Jets are so far and away worse than all these teams that it's going to take something miraculous for a win to happen. And it might. Something miraculous might happen. They might get a win before the season is over. But they're never actually going to deserve a win. So if if you're predicting it, it's not because you truly believe that the Jets are ever the better team going into a week. It's not because it looks like it's a great matchup for the Jets. It's because this is football, and anything can happen any week. The ball can bounce in a weird direction sometimes. But when you heard somebody say, that they think the Jets are going to beat a specific team or win a specific game, it's based on nothing other than the law of averages. It's just an assumption that it's a it's it's bound to happen. So let me jump out in front of it just in case they do win. Now I can say, see, I told you the Jets could win. I predicted this one. But here against the Dolphins, Tua was out. Darnold was in. The defense actually played pretty well. Gay's promise he wasn't going to focus the offense around a 37-year-old running back. He touted Darnold getting to play with Perriman, Mims, and Crowder for the first time, and it didn't matter. Frank Gore was still the focal point of the offense. Adam Gase was still really bad, and I don't care whether it was Gase or, or Loggins, whoever the play caller was, 
was really bad. Sam Darnold was still really bad. Like, really bad. Even playing with his best group of wide receivers all year. 20-3 loss. 0-11. And one step closer to Trevor Lawrence. And I give the, the beat writers of this team a lot of credit. Because this team is so uninteresting. So bad. And for them to... Them meaning the beat writers to still have the ability to stay on course and be pressing Adam Gase on questions about play calling. It's kind of impressive. We talk about players checking out when their team is bad. Having a right speak, question, and analyze it, a team that is historically one of the worst teams we've ever seen in the NFL, you could similarly check out. I mean, asking Gase about play calling, whether, whether like I said, whether it's him or Dow Loggins, asking Gase about the fact that Loggins was doing other things while the Jets were on offense, clearly not looking like he was calling plays. In the end, it really doesn't matter because the Jets aren't getting any better, so who calls the plays is largely irrelevant to the point of the Jets just being a brutally bad team. But first, Gase said that Loggins is still calling the plays. Then he said that he calls the plays himself on third down. Then he admitted that he takes over during the two-minute drill. But it's just, it's got to be exhausting conversations and questions that you need to ask of an 0-11 team. And I, I get that they're getting paid. They have a job to do and a responsibility to cover the team, but to be pressing the head coach who's a notorious liar, an excuse maker, it's got to be tiring. So credit to the beat writers for uh, for staying on beat, except except Manish Mehta. And the, the Mehta story from, from last week is wild. Mehta took his responsibility of covering the team to an unheard of, level a, a pretty disgusting level and i feel kind of like dirty i think that might be the word because i i was defending meta so much previously last year earlier this year you know not only was i defending meta especially in the off season but i, I was a fan of his writing and his reporting because he challenged the jets so much and meta always had some sort of unique angle something unique and interesting to write and to report and it was never just a, about a game recap or a redundant report re- repeating what what other writers were were putting out there. You know, Meta tried to make it a bit of a soap opera covering the Jets, and he would put out plenty of clickbait that got me every single time. And two things with Meta. The first, Meta went from being an Adam Gase defender which he was when the Jets hired Gase. He treated it as if Gase was going to fix the Jets. He he treated it the hire like Gase was going to be able to develop Sam Darnold and he was going to be the offensive genius that he sold himself as and that Peyton Manning sold him as. And I, I don't know if Meta maybe never truly believed it or maybe Meta was just trying to get on Gase's good side when he was doing all that because it seemed like Meta turned on Gase Oddly fast, like faster than most of the fan base did. And it wasn't even necessarily because he was a bad coach. But I feel like Meta turned on him because Mike McCagnum was fired. And I I think Meta had a good relationship with McCagnum. And once he 
lost having that connection. Once Meta wasn't given the access to sources that he may have once had. At that point, it was an all-out attempt to get rid of Gase and Joe Douglas as soon as he possibly could. Especially get rid of Gase. And the second thing with him is... When reports at the start of the season, which I think the first ones came from Chris Carlin, about Meta losing his credentials with the Jets, um, when those reports were announced, you knew that there had to be more to the story in terms of why Manish Meta was losing his credentials with the Jets. It couldn't have only been because the Jets did not like him being critical of them, because that would have set an awful an unhealthy, unethical precedent for a team to revoke a reporter's credentials simply over the fact that he or she was being too critical of that team. Although I guess the the Knicks kind of did that with Frank Isola years ago, so it's not totally unheard of. But in the case of Meta, as, as it turns out, there was more to that story, and it had to do with the fact that not only was he having an agenda, not not only did did Meta want Gase and Douglas to get fired. But he was legitimately stalking Joe Douglas's family, which is crazy. Insane. And look, if if his credentials were revoked solely because he was being too critical, the Daily News and even other writers would have came to his defense. The fact that they did not do that, the fact that it just happened without a fight kind of shows you that Meta did something wrong. And more wrong than just being critical of the team. And being a, a stalker is very wrong. I'm not I'm not sure if it was Craig Carton who broke broke that story or if it he just broke the detail that Meta was texting Joe Douglas that he was watching his son eat ice cream. Which is is so just mind blowingly ridiculous, I can't even fathom it. How how could Meta be doing something like that? And just assume that it wouldn't get out. I, I mean, I guess credit Douglas credit the Jets and anyone else that, that knew what he was doing, credit them for keeping quiet, because if I was being stalked, not only would I want Meta's credentials to be pulled, I wouldn't want him to keep writing at all about the team. He shouldn't have the job. If all this is true. I, I don't know what the latest on it is. Meta didn't tweet at all during the Jets game. Usually he's very active on social commenting during the game, criticizing Gase when he can. And was it last week or two weeks ago we had the, the Jets' secret camera story? Now we have a beat writer stalking story. At least this one isn't the team's fault. It's nice to have an embarrassing story, but not have to have to uh, to, to give that the same old Jets line. Because this one in particular is not on the franchise. Take a quick break on the Brandon Condon's Jets podcast back after this. I don't I don't know if the shoulder was still bothering Sam Darnold. But he was playing like a quarterback that knew or knows his his career with the Jets is already over. Um, And while we all know that, and you would expect that he realizes what's going on, you you would just, you'd want to see some sort of fight out of him. Um, Because the bottom line is this, if Sam Darnold miraculously played really, really well, at the end of the season down the stretch here, it's going to knock the Jets out of the number one overall pick, maybe knock them out of a, a top three pick even 
and then he stays the quarterback next year. So as much as we know this team is really bad, as much as we feel that Sam Darnold is not the quarterback of the future at this point, he still has the ability to change that narrative. Uh, and he just he just didn't look like a quarterback that was um, really working to show that he has the ability to do that. And at first, I found myself really rooting for him in this game. Like, as much as I know that he's not the quarterback of the future, as much as I know the Jets need to lose these games until Jacksonville hopefully picks off another team, there's still some sort of underlying hope that maybe all the hype and talent that Sam Darnold was touted with out of college, maybe it will be realized today. Maybe something will click. And as much as it never happens every single week, and now we could say every single season, I still have to see it for myself to be sure that it's not going to happen. Now that that hope fades quickly, but I, I go from having hope to feeling bad for Darnold in these games to ultimately realizing and remembering that this is as much his fault as it is the team's. Like, after that that Denzel Mims pass interference penalty in the end zone in the third quarter, Darnold came back two plays later on third and eight and threw an awful interception. Rolling out to the right, thrown back to the left into two defenders with the nearest receiver a few feet away. It was a, a bad decision and a bad throw that he actually, he made a, a, the throw harder on himself because he went across his body and, but I, I don't care how bad the team is, how bad the weapons are, how inept the coaching is, that interception is on Sam Darnold. And that throw is exactly why the Jets will move on from him as their quarterback at the end of this year. The good news from this game, Mims looked really good again. Whether it's Flacco or Darnold, Mims seems to look like a legitimate wide receiver. Quinnen Williams was fantastic and looks like a legit presence on the defensive line. And Makai Becton, which we've said this now for a few weeks, when healthy, seems to be having the potential to be a stud at left tackle. If he's healthy, he's going to be great. And he's absolutely a main reason why Frank Gore was so effective against the Dolphins. They kept running to the left side. That they They had no passing game. But Becton was still creating holes for a 37-year-old running back. And I'm sure it's happened at some point, but I can't at the moment think of an NFL player whose value plummeted more than Sam Darnold's has, solely based on performance and not because of injury or any other external circumstances away from the football field. Because Darnold went from commanding a top 10 first round pick and three second round picks to now maybe you can get a third for him. If there happens to be a bidding war between the, the Steelers and the Colts, maybe the price goes up to like a third and a sixth or a seventh. But this drop off, it happened in three years. He went from being the savior to looking like a quarterback that was ready for Trevor Lawrence to steal his job. And it's frustrating. 
And speaking of saviors, I'm not saying that Tom Brady is a bad quarterback or that he's finished, that he has nothing left or he can't win. You know, Tom Brady is is more than a capable quarterback at the age of 43. Brady can make, make enough throws. He's certainly savvy enough to be a Super Bowl contending quarterback. But the Buccaneers have not treated Brady like a capable quarterback. They've treated him like the best quarterback in football. And he's not that anymore. I I feel comfortable in acknowledging that Tom Brady is not as good as Patrick Mahomes. He's not as good as Russell Wilson or even Aaron Rodgers. And Bruce Arians was in Tampa last year. He's a very good coach with a very good resume, especially in his ability to handle quarterbacks. He watches Brady migrate south in like Antonio Brown, Rob Gronkowski, Leonard Fournette. These are players that are in Tampa this season because Tom Brady wanted them. Not because Bruce Arians wanted them. In fact, Arians was even vocal about being steadfast against bringing Brown in. So Arians is sitting there as, as the head coach of this team watching Brady walk in and get everything handed to him. He he gets the players that he wants. He has Arians start to tailor the offense to Brady somewhat. It's not exactly Brady's offense in New England, but Brady did not want to run his New England offense from last year. He didn't want to be a game manager. He wanted to to move the ball downfield and have weapons to take advantage of. Everybody's been talking about Arians like he's asking Brady to do too much or do things that he's not comfortable doing. I don't see it that way. Yes, Arians likes to move the ball downfield. He's always been a, a very aggressive coach and play caller, but this is not Arians making Brady throw the ball downfield. And that that's what's leading to turnovers. Brady very much has his hand in designing the offense. There's no question about that. Brady wanted the weapons to make this into a high-powered offense in Tampa. So Arians is on the sideline watching Brady get everything that he wants, and he's got to be sitting there saying, why? He's got, he's got to be wondering, we gave him everything he wants. Where are the results? I'm, I'm coaching, I'm tailoring the offense to him. Where are the results? Is is Brady get good enough to get to get everything that he wants to be the quarterback, to be the general manager and the coach? And the answer is no. Look, look at the way that the, the Packers are treating Aaron Rodgers. They're treating him like an old quarterback. As effective as he still is. They're grooming his replacement. They're, they're not giving him the weapons that he wants. But Brady is being treated like he's in his prime. And the results just aren't there right now. Again, not not that they're terrible, not that he's terrible or incapable of of being a Super Bowl contending quarterback. But to get everything handed to him that he has, and then to put forth a 7-5 and five record, a couple of embarrassing performances against the Saints and the Rams in recent weeks, and when he plays a good defense, Brady looks old. But I'll say this, despite the uncomfortable ending in New England, in the the 20 years that that Brady was there, there was very little drama between Brady and Belichick. So it's kind of fun to watch what appears to be a rift between Brady and Bruce Arians. And it's kind of interesting to see how that's going to unfold. It's fun to see Brady deal with some adversity, some criticism, feel some heat. 
especially from his head coach. Because like I said, that that didn't happen, at least publicly, in 20 years with the Patriots. And now here he is in Tampa in his first year. And all of a sudden, it looks like maybe he doesn't get along with the head coach so well. Jets Raiders against what is probably a very angry Las Vegas Raiders team. Slipped out of the playoff picture this week after a blowout loss to to a bad Falcons team. And Jaguars-Vikings, the other important game to watch next week as we hope for a Jaguars win. And then hopefully maybe the, the, the Jets in return, if the Jaguars get another win, then we can root hard for the Jets to get one win on the year, not be 0-16. Thanks for listening to the Brandon Condes Jets podcast. And as always, big up.